The Fanboy, episode 133. Hi, everybody. Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 133 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Going to start the show off this week by discussing the future. That's right, the future, discussing what comes next. Because when I first brought this show back about six or seven months ago now, one of the big topics was, hey... We are amidst a historic pandemic that is completely reshaping and reforming the entertainment industry as we know it. And all of our favorite characters and mythologies and intellectual properties are tied into these new and emerging trends. And certain things are going away and certain things are coming in. And at that time, everything was still kind of up in the air. But in the last couple of weeks, we've gotten a few major updates on where all the streamers are heading and where the trends are sort of pointing towards right now. So I'm going to start things off by discussing all of this stuff and how it affects our favorite characters. Variety published a very fascinating column this week about exactly this topic about what the different streaming giants and their corporate owners are all doing right now in an attempt to try to get the most out of all of the properties that they own, create synergy between the big screen and the small screen, and in general, get in the business of creating universes rather than standalone franchises. So I strongly suggest you go check out that column by Variety, but I'm going to be reading several little excerpts from it, and I'm going to use that to sort of make some of my points today and to illustrate some things. So just kind of wanted to give you that background. If you've read that article, you're walking into this conversation fairly well equipped. But if you haven't read it, listen, I'm going to do my best to break it down for you. So here, here we go. Let's get started. So the biggest change that Variety points out right off the bat is that at each studio, it used to be that there were different departments for different things. There was a TV department. There was a film department. There was a merchandising department. There was, you know, there, there, there was any number of things where everything was sort of segregated. But now, little by little, over the course of the last year and a half, each of these companies has been restructuring everything in such a way where everything is now getting streamlined and simplified so that now all the divisions actually work together to create a sort of cohesive vision around each property. So that's interesting. And they kind of go around from studio to studio, Variety did, kind of pointing out how each studio is sort of approaching each of their different things. And they're talking about the fact that major IPs, major intellectual properties are basically driving everything right now. Everything right now is about Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, DC, all that kind of stuff. The super geeky properties right now, that is the stuff that all of these companies are trying to get in on, but not just trying to milk them, but trying to add new layers and levels around them, flesh them out, bump them out, make them bigger, make them work across several mediums. Because look, for better or worse, Disney is kind of the gold standard right now. Disney is crushing it across all the different facets of this business. You know, the movies are doing well. The TV shows are doing well. The merchandise is flying off the shelves. 
All the theme parks are routinely selling out, even the middle of a freaking pandemic. Like they're they're finding ways to maximize and get the most out of all these different properties. So all the other studios are kind of doing their own variations of this kind of world building, this growing out of the properties they own and trying to simultaneously service the existing audience for that property while also bringing in more people. So let's kind of go studio by studio because it's interesting. It's very interesting. Like, for example, what Paramount is doing with Star Trek, because Alex Kurtzman was sort of uh, interviewed for this. And by the way, I have to just make a little side note. Kurtzman, I'm glad he landed on his feet somewhere. You know, the, the, he's had several attempts to be like a huge power player. And uh, sometimes things have worked out, sometimes they haven't, but it looks like he's landed on his feet. Because just like a quick history lesson for me, like Kurtzman arrived on the scene in you know right around Star Trek 2009. That J.J. Abrams reboot was when I first noticed him because he helped co-write and produce that. He was part of the creative team along with Bob Orchie. You know, him, Orchie, and Abrams really were behind the reboot at Star Trek, which I loved. I loved that first one right and then people didn't really care for star trek into darkness and suddenly the kurtzman name got a little bit disheveled right and then the same thing happened with the spider-man movies where he was connected to the amazing spider-man and the amazing spider-man 2 kurtzman was and he was actually at the time working on rounding out that whole Spider-Man universe that they were building there with Andrew Garfield. The universe that was going to give us the Sinister Six, the universe that was going to give us, you know, Spider-Girl and and Spider-Aunt May, all those weird, crazy plans they had. Kurtzman was the guy who was spearheading that for Sony, kind of helping them map out their little Spideyverse. And then what happened? That it didn't end up going so well. So Kurtzman kind of, once again, something that he was sort of creatively behind kind of fizzled away and, and, and after starting off on a positive note, kind of went elsewhere afterward. And then Kurtzman got another chance. Kurtzman became the like architect or he was heavily involved, I should say, with Universal's Monster Universe. And as we all know, the monster universe also imploded. So for me, it was just interesting, you know, seeing Kurtzman try on all these different hats as like the architect of these different major properties. But ultimately, it looks like the Star Trek hat is the one that fit. Because right now over at Paramount, they have Kurtzman kind of overseeing all kinds of Star Trek stuff. And what he what he revealed, his quotes on the matter uh, said a lot to me. On the subject of now how the the, the lines have been blurred between movies and TV shows and all the different mediums, since now basically everyone takes in their content however they want. They could see it on their phone. They could see it on their iPad. They can go to a theater. They could watch it in their living room. You know, one of the, the, the first things that Kurtzman wants to discuss here is the fact that there really is no line of separation anymore. So here's his quote on that. He says, I think vertical alignment has made it so that it's impossible not to accept the reality that the line between movies and television is gone. It doesn't mean that you can't have a feature that is separate from television, but if they aren't connected in some way, then you're basically running two universes parallel as opposed to interconnected. 
And I think that those messages could potentially cancel each other out. So listen, I find that very interesting because it is true that up until recently, everything was siloed. Everything was separate. Just like, you know, let's stick with DC, right? They had the Arrowverse and then they had the Snyderverse going at the same time where the Arrowverse is her is, is, is on the CW and it's having its own relative amount of success. And then you had the DCEU movies coming out between 2016 and, you know, straight up, you know, whatever. They're still technically coming out because to me, I still consider the DCEU as ongoing. It may have changed the direction it was going in, but so much of what was introduced five years ago is still in play that it really is all just one franchise that sort of evolved over the years. But it used to be separate. Where it used to be, oh, if you're going to use this character here, then you can't use him there. And there was all these weird lines of separation and of segregation. I mean, I even think about like when Superman Returns came out, but it had nothing to do with Smallville, but they tried to promote it on Smallville with like special clips and previews of Superman Returns. But I remember thinking it's kind of weird that like these are both about different phases of Clark Kent's life and, and Smallville likes to sort of build on the Richard Donner era in a bit. And Superman Returns is completely based on the Richard Donner era. And yet these two projects have no sort of relationship in, you know, at all. You know, and, and that's sort of like the old model. That's the way things used to be. But now, Kurtzman described something pretty interesting going on over at Paramount that I want to share with you. Because I'm like, if all the studios start to do this, and it sounds like some variation of this is becoming the norm. If all the studios do what Kurtzman describes, which I'm about to read to you, that could mean that there's some pretty special possibilities coming up in the future. But here's what Kurtzman said that really kind of made me, you know, perk my ear up and go, really? I like the sound of that. Kurtzman says those who oversee the various Star Trek properties have begun strategizing to an even greater degree within Viacom CBS in the past year with the launch of a monthly showrunners meeting. It allows everyone to see what parts of the Star Trek universe are being utilized on other shows. Kurtzman says, we make sure that those showrunners are coordinating so that they're not stepping on each other's toes. So that's interesting. So now you're going to have all these creators working within the same universe, but rather than having them kind of working on their own and giving them these strict rules of which characters they can use or which characters they can't or whatever, now they're all going to work together. Once a month, they're going to come into a room and they're going to go, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Here's where I'm going with my show. Where are you going? Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. So you want to do that? Well, I want to do this. Maybe we could find a way for like your thing to plant the seeds to mine thing. Oh yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's this idea of all the creators working Working together to create a form of synergy amongst all the projects. And I think that's pretty damn exciting. And I kind of hope that that becomes the industry standard, that it becomes literally fine. If, if, if you're going to task all these different teams of writers and creators to make all of these different things that are all connected under the same umbrella, then at least get them to speak to each other so everything is not so choppy and disconnected and disjointed. Because it is true. 
that an interconnected universe really is the future. And I know like my friends over at Batman on film, I know Bill likes it better when Batman is completely by himself. But listen, the days of that are over. You know, listen, they're going to keep certain things somewhat segregated, but by and large, DC and all of these people, all of these people in charge of all of these properties, they don't want to just give you, here's one standalone experience that you could enjoy in a vacuum. They want to present you an entire interconnected universe where you can follow the things you really are interested in, maybe not follow the things you're not, but at least it's all somewhat related, even if it's through some sort of creative backdoor sort of scenario. So it's interesting to think that now we are in this place where everyone has accepted the interconnected universe model. Because even at Warner Media, and they bring this up in the Variety article, that they're taking some pages from the Disney playbook too. You know, where they've got movies coming out, but they've also got spinoffs coming to to HBO Max, just like Disney has their Marvel movies coming, but they've got all these spinoffs currently airing on Disney Plus, right? Because we know that James Gunn has already shot or is shooting a Peacemaker spinoff series for The Suicide Squad starring John Cena to go alongside his The Suicide Squad movie. We also know that Matt Reeves is producing a Gotham show for HBO Max that apparently, rumor has it, is going to center a lot around James Gordon and is going to have some fairly direct ties to where the movies are and where they're going. So, you know, that we're already starting to hear and see little bits of the synergy that happens when everyone is working together. You know, just like last year when we saw that, actually, I think it's been about a year and a half now, when we saw that neat Ezra Miller cameo on the Arrowverse, you know, we're already starting to see bits of what that interconnectivity looks like. And over in the Star Wars, you know, like in in Mandalorian, the fact that Luke Skywalker from the movies showed up on the Mandalorian, like... We are really starting to lean into this idea that everything is connected, whether it's on the little screen or the big screen. And I think like the the sky's the limit here. The 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 the, the advantages of this approach could be vast as long as they manage these things appropriately. And it's going to be fascinating to sort of see how things go. You know, how things go, how do people accept certain things or are certain gambles going to pay off? Like what comes to mind too is like, for example, right now, HBO Max is trying to figure out, okay, we have this Game of Thrones IP and we're going to spin it off. They just announced House of the Dragon is coming out in 2022. But that, that that is after two or three spinoff attempts didn't quite make it past the pilot stage. And I wonder if part of that is because they know this thing has to be a crowd pleaser because that final season of Game of Thrones left such like a weird taste in people's mouths that it could potentially sink the whole property. And that's the thing where like, if you, that, that's another interesting aspect on all of this, that if you're one of the people in charge of these massive properties, you have to make sure that everything you're putting forward is only growing the base of clients, is only growing your customers, is only bringing in more people. If you're releasing things that are now alienating your core market or making your your, your most ardent supporters go, oh, what is this? Then you're doing something wrong. 
So it's going to be fascinating to see like the lessons that they learn and the way they try to maneuver bringing you know, keeping these ips alive and fresh and moving like for example with game of thrones since we're on that it's like i almost feel like we're possibly heading into a the force awakens type of scenario which i mean and what i mean by that is when they launch this next series it not only has to capture people's attention for now, but it almost sort of inadvertently has to make them forget or at least forgive season eight of Game of Thrones, just like The Force Awakens kind of had to make people forgive or in certain ways forget the prequel trilogy. You know, so I wonder if like, is House of the Dragon going to be a lot of very familiar stuff that's going to remind us of like the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones when we loved it? I bet you it will. I bet you there's going to be lots of very familiar elements as they try to thread that needle between the old and the new, which is the big question in all of this. You know, I read a Ben, a ben Affleck quote on this show like two months ago about how everyone in Hollywood is trying to figure out that balance between nostalgia and new, between playing for the younger crowd, between playing for the older crowd and figuring out who is this for and who is it not for. You know, Affleck spoke about that. And that honestly is the name of the game. The name of the game right now across Hollywood is figuring out how best to maximize the business on each of these universes. But since not everyone is doing it exactly the same way, it's going to be interesting to see which approaches work and which approaches do not work. Because that was something else that came out of the Variety article that I found very interesting is they start naming names of who's running what and all that. And well, I'm just going to read you this paragraph and you're going to see where I was kind of like, well, yes, these are alike, but there is something quite different. <laughs> So here's the, here's a paragraph that I had some fun with from the Variety article. It says, these companies have already begun realigning their executive ranks to foster greater collaboration across film, TV, digital, and live event businesses. Marvel Studios set the recent precedent with Kevin Feige, who originally led the company's film endeavors, adding TV to his purview with the dissolution of Marvel Television. Others have followed suit, as witnessed by the increased cooperation at Warner Media, among Walter Hamada on the film side and TV leaders Casey Bloys and Channing Dungey. The hiring of former Hulu chief Jason Kalar as Warner Media CEO, with Ann Sarnoff as chair and CEO of Warner Media Studios and Networks Group, responsible for all of the company's content-focused teams signaled a dramatic shift to a more forward-facing era at the venerable studio. So, okay, that was a, that, that was a lot. That was a lot. <laughs> but the thing in that paragraph that kind of just cracked me up is they just described that over at Disney, they've made one guy kind of in charge of both. They said Kevin Feige is, you know, basically mapping out the film endeavors and now TV is under his purview as well. So one guy is calling the shots at Disney. But then on the next sentence, they say others have followed suit as if they're about to give an example of how Warner did the same thing. Oh, they're following suit. Marvel put it all under one guy. But what do they describe? They don't describe a streamlined process. They drop five names. <laughs> so once again, like, are we... 
are, are we looking at a situation here where we might have too many cooks in the kitchen? They don't even mention Jim Lee, who we know Jim Lee has had some sort of say on a lot of major happenings across the TV and film media. You know, he, he was one of the people instrumental in getting Ezra Miller onto the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover. So, and meanwhile, this doesn't even mention him. But I just, I, I think it's very interesting. So here in the Marvel side, there's just one name. There's one name you hear, Kevin Feige. Then on the Warner Media end of things, you hear Walter Hamada, Casey Blois, Channing Dungey, Jason Kalar, and Sarnoff. And they're all like CEOs or leaders of some particular department. And it's like, all right, but who's the boss? Where does the buck stop? Who's responsible for the big picture decisions? You know, at Marvel, we know exactly who that is, or at least who they tell us it is. When it comes to Warner Media, we're still kind of in this weird place where there's this kind of like vagueness around, well, who's the actual boss? Where does the buck stop? So, you know, like I said, not all the studios are approaching this from the same vantage point. So it's going to be very interesting to see which approaches work, which approaches don't work. Personally, for me, I have a feeling that if the Warners can get their acts together, I feel like their sort of concept for the DC multiverse could be the thing that that, that works most for me as a fan. Because I like the variety of having all kinds of different visionary creators taking a stab at each of these characters. You know, I, I, I kind of really dig that. The whole Marvel thing where there's one guy deciding what everything is sort of like. I mean, listen, it works on TV. And clearly they are having a ton of success when it comes to this sort of business model. But for me, I kind of like the more sort of high wire, risky sort of approach of like, listen, I may not love each DC project that comes out, but like when, at least they're always striving for something. And at least, listen, when it hits, it's unbelievable. And when it doesn't hit, it's like, oh, that wasn't quite right. But you know what? It's not safe. It's kind of messy, but I liken it to like rock and roll. It's like, you know, the, the DC movies are going to be a little more experimental in a way, right? Because they're clearly not going for the Marvel thing. You know, James Gunn's Suicide Squad is going to be rated R. And you got, you know, um, what's his name? You got the shark ripping someone in half. You know, like th th this is not going to be a little kid cutesy little thing. So they're clearly going for their own thing. And some of it will skew older. Some of it will skew younger. Some of it will feed a more niche audience. Some of it will be more of your four quadrant stuff. Like I, I think that Black Adam movie, which has finally gotten filming this week, by the way, I think that Black Adam movie is going to be a big pivot point. Right now, I see two major pivot points coming up ahead for DC on film. One is obviously that Flash movie, but the other one is this Black Adam. Dwayne Johnson, listen, he might be just a, an artist when it comes to hype and making things sound way cooler than maybe they will be because he's just like a natural showman and a natural salesman. But he keeps referencing about how basically this is going to change everything. This is going to change history. This is going to be basically, you know, a huge turning point for all things DC on film. You know, he uses these epic sounding hashtags. He's like really majorly hyping up the importance of Black Adam. And the fact that they started filming this week, 
a movie that's going to span lots of time, show us this epic sort of anti-hero Black Adam that's going to bring us the Justice Society, that's going to sort of probably set up a Black Adam and Shazam showdown down the line, or at least plant a seed for Shazam 2, Fury of the Gods, and possibly give us more Henry Cavill Superman. Hello, hello, hello. So... To me, like the Black Adam movie is going to be a huge and important, pivotal turning point for DC on film. And that's the stuff that's on the way. And honestly, that makes me a hell of a lot more excited than anything currently coming out for Marvel. Like, listen, I'm interested in Spider-Man 3 and all the crazy multiverse stuff they're going to do. I'm fascinated, by the way, by the fact that Doctor Strange 2 has wrapped filming this week. That's right. Did you even know it was filming? Because I didn't. I don't think anybody did. It goes to show you that like, when, when, when Marvel wants to uh, reduce the amount of leaks, when they want to keep a tight lid on something, they know how to do it. Because here we have Sam Raimi, Sam freaking Raimi, returning to the realm of Marvel to do a movie with Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange 2, and he's got Danny Elfman scoring it. Like this is, a, th th there's a lot around this project and the fact that it's going to give us at last after several false teases in Far From Home and in WandaVision, it's going to finally give us the multiverse. So there's a lot riding on this Doctor Strange 2. And yet I'm not like, you know, aside from those two things, aside from those two movies, there's not a lot that I'm jumping up and down about. But when it comes to DC's future, I'm very, very intrigued by where things go. I'm very intrigued by the by, by the flact, by the fact that the Flash could introduce us to a new Justice League. That it's just there is so much to sort of look forward to at the moment, and I just really kind of hope they stick the landing on a lot of this stuff because to me it sounds very ambitious. To me, it sounds very sort of interesting and potentially groundbreaking, but it's all going to come down to whether or not this team of five leaders can get their team to create some very high quality entertainment that doesn't end up sinking the whole ship. Because that is sort of the big question too. When you're doing all of this and you're attempting to have everything interconnected, you got to make sure that every for every step you're putting forward is a good step forward and not something that's going to derail the possibilities for other stories you want to tell. And there's another, because there's a paragraph about that that I found interesting in the variety column. They said, having the auspices of Star Wars or Marvel attached to a show is a huge asset, but enlisting high profile talent like Gunn or Kurtzman behind the camera can also be essential. There are no sequels, prequels, lunchboxes, or t-shirts to sell if the underlying project doesn't take flight. Worse, a poorly executed remake or reboot can cast a long shadow and alienate the property's core audience. By the way, I think that was kind of coded language because I feel like you could say that that's what AT&T felt when they were coming in and they were buying Warner Brothers and they were coming in and seeing sort of where DC was at that time and determining that Batman versus Superman had been somewhat of a poison pill that hurt the entire property in the eyes of the exact core audience 
that they're going to need to make this thing work. Because that's the thing. Batman versus Superman wasn't sort of an, an, an in and out, simple, neat, clean story. This is something that was going to have ramifications on five different film series. Because obviously it's going to impact any of your Justice League plans. It's going to impact any of your Superman plans, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Aquaman. Actually, six different characters are being framed and being introduced and being, you know, packaged for the world to enjoy in this BVS movie. And when the reviews were as bad as they were and when the box office trends kind of set off a few alarms for them, of course, they were going to go, well, then we need to move as far away from this as possible. We have to find a way to fix this situation as quickly as possible because this movie is going to sink the whole ship. So, you know, I, th that, that, that line there is just very important to me, that the fact that that was included in the Snyder thing, because that is an important thing to factor in. You know, we sometimes have to take our own fandoms and put them aside for a second and put ourselves in the shoes of the owners of these companies, the people who run these studios, the people who even just work on the corporate end, the people, you know, the AT&T people who aren't movie people, but Hey, we just bought Warner. So let's see what they're doing. Oh, Warner has DC and we just bought Warner. So that means now we have DC. Let's see how DC's doing. I mean, it's gotta be doing great. The Marvel movies are doing huge business and, and there's always this positive buzz and anticipation for the next one. How are the DC movies going? Going. And in 2016, 2017, what were they looking at? They were looking at Batman versus Superman and they were looking at Suicide Squad and they were hearing about what was going on with this Justice League movie that has now been in production and is getting rewritten and rewritten and overhauled. You know, th they're looking at what's currently there and they're saying, this is a bit of a mess. So if we're buying Warner and we're buying DC, we have to make sure that the DC brand can get sort of revamped and brought back in a positive light again. And for better or worse, there was a decision made that what DC was putting out there was pissing off the core audience. And listen, there are metrics that back that up, but I really don't want to get into all that again today. I've spent the last several weeks on all this Snyder Cut stuff and analyzing it, and I kind of want to just kind of pivot around that a little bit. But the only thing I will say about that is the Zack Snyder trilogy trailer was pretty badass. HBO Max put out a trailer this week about four minutes long that kind of recaps Man of Steel and BVS, gives glimpses of Justice League, and frames the entire thing as Zack Snyder's trilogy. Which, of course, we know that it wasn't meant to be a trilogy, and that's been upsetting for some fans because it's like, well, no, it's not a trilogy. It's supposed to be five movies. How? What, what are you doing to us? But again, it's just another sort of continued bit of messaging from the people at Warner Max that we're moving on. This is done. This is not something that you should expect to continue. And I'm pretty excited for where they're going. And Netflix's role in all of this is really rather interesting, too, because let's face it. Netflix is the king of the streamers. They began this streaming revolution all those years ago when they started, rather than just mailing you DVDs in the mail, actually streaming movies directly to your television or directly to your computer at the time. Because that's uh, I think that began before smart TVs were a thing. But yeah, so Netflix is undoubtedly 
the king of the streamers. And last week, they announced something pretty huge. See, Tavo, I got to it, Tavo. Last week, they announced that Ryan Johnson has signed a deal worth $450 million to make two sequels to Knives Out. His, uh, his, his murder mystery. And he's apparently set to pocket like a hundred million of those dollars to make those movies. And when you hear about deals like this, when you hear about some of this stuff, it, 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 it makes you wonder, how can they justify that? Why would they do that? You know, why aren't other studios doing something similar? And what's interesting here is that while Netflix is the king, they have a unique disadvantage. And this is why they have to fork over so much money to get certain creators locked down. Because while it may have been the one that sort of led the way, a lot of the new streamers are connected already to certain film studios. So they already have a lot of owned content that they don't have to pay a penny for because it's in their film vault. You know, like Peacock has Universal Studios, HBO Max has Warner Media, Disney Plus, obviously. Uh, there's the, the the Paramount app, which has all of Paramount Pictures and all of all of the things that Paramount has bought over the years. So a lot of these streamers, they don't have to look too far to find content to put on their streamer, and they don't have to pay out you know insane exorbitant amounts to to license these things to stream on their things they own this stuff netflix doesn't have that yes they have their own netflix studios and they have their original properties but they don't own some expansive long film vault of titles that they could just you know put up there whenever they want I mean, that's why they also just had to fork over like $1 billion to Sony to try to get their archive and get access to their Marvel Spider-Man movies because they don't have any of their own stuff. And that really is the name of the game in the entertainment industry. You want to own your content. You want to be able to say, I have a whole warehouse full of this stuff and I'm going to make you pay to watch it. Netflix doesn't have that warehouse. Netflix has to sh go around to other creators and other studios and go, hey, can I get some stuff from you to show my people? So it's just an interesting sort of dynamic how Netflix, in order to compete with the new arrivals in terms of all these streamers that have cropped up in the last couple of years, uh, now they have to do these huge, crazy deals and make these big splashes. And they're not alone. You know, Amazon does something similar. Apple TV does something similar. But right now, you got to hand it to the ones that are connected to pre-existing film studios already. Because they have it really easy. They have it really easy. All they, you know, They've already got all the stuff. All they have to do is show it to us. Netflix has to figure out, how do I get you and keep you and keep you excited? Oh, I got to pay for all of this other people's content. That's why I wonder if at some point Netflix would consider just buying an entire studio outright. And I don't know which studios are on the market. So many of them have kind of you know, been consolidated and merged and then bought out by some other corporate conglomerate. But like if Netflix can find some sort of legacy film studio that's been around for a while that has decades worth of well-liked content and then they could just buy that, that would help them, I think, tremendously. 
But I mean, listen, Netflix doesn't need our help. Netflix is doing just fine. But I think that's just an interesting bit of distinction. As we hear about all these crazy deals that they're cutting, as we examine all of the different streaming giants, it's important to note that Netflix has nothing really to draw from. So they're constantly having to create original stuff while paying for other people's stuff at the same time, while other streamers have it all laying around and all they have to pay are for the original things that sort of help beef up their existing library. So it's just a very interesting, very different sort of business model. And I'm not sure people realize exactly how different it is to run an HBO Max than it is to run a Netflix. And now I'm just going to wrap up with one final question from this variety thing before we get to some other stuff. So here's one final little excerpt. In recent months, Media giants have undergone some of the most ambitious overhauls in their history as they move toward a future that is becoming ever more digital. The largest players, including Disney, Comcast's NBC Universal, and AT&T's Warner Media, have taken radical steps to realign businesses that were once heavily siloed. Where decision-making and executive hierarchies were once defined network by network, now the norm is centralized groups to steer development and production for a myriad of potential outlets. Disney, Warner Media, and NBC Universal have cleaved TV operations along the lines of distribution and content creation. Film studios have been told to stop thinking purely in terms of theatrical releases and to start pitching ideas to their corporate cousins at Peacock, Disney Plus, or HBO Max. That has created new power centers and new power players. So, you know, this is where we're at. This is where we're at. This is the future of the entertainment business. I'm very, very intrigued about how this is all going to go as everyone seemingly now starts to work on this approach of let's have everything have some form of synergy. It's going to be very interesting to see how all that works out. It's going to be very interesting to see if those of us who get what we asked for, are we going to regret what we asked for? Because I've always been number one on the, now that I've seen the Marvel way, I want everything to be interconnected. And I feel like a lot of people share that. As soon as we started seeing that there's a way for all these movies to connect, and then you find out that they also connect to the TV shows and all that sort of stuff. Like to me, that's a game changer. To me, that changes everything. To me, that's the kind of thing that would make me watch TV shows now that I wouldn't normally watch. Because one of the reasons I didn't used to watch Arrowverse shows was because, well, why the hell should I care? It's not connected to the movies. It's just its own thing. That's for a different group of people. I'll let that group of people enjoy it. But if I know now that all of this in some way, shape, or form is connected or can be connected... Now you've got my attention. Now I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give this a try. The same way I did that with the Marvel Netflix shows. Initially, we were sold a bill of goods on those shows. We were told, oh, this is all connected. Look how Daredevil keeps referencing the Battle of the Hulk that happened in Harlem with Hulk and Abomination. Oh, look how they keep referencing the attack on New York, the big battle at the end of Avengers inside a Daredevil show. 
So it's like, I was sold on that. That interconnectivity is something that I've been on fire about for like 10 or 11 years. And it seems now like we're really officially heading into that era where everyone is working on that sort of way of telling these stories. So it's going to be fascinating in the months and years to, to come to see whose approach works the best whose approach works the most, who keeps having to change their freaking plans every few months because they're indecisive. There's going to be all kinds of interesting things to break down as the entertainment industry continues to evolve. But I'm going to be here to break it down with you. So I'm kind of excited. And uh, last thing I'll say on that is, look, a lot of us were pretty worried about the state of movie theaters, that would the theatrical experience be the same? Will people ever return to theaters again? Or are the, are the distributors now starting to turn their backs on the theatrical release window? And one last bit of news I want to share with you is that Warner has already announced that in 2022, their movies are going to the movies again. It's not going to be this thing that happened this year where it arrives on HBO Max at the same time as in theaters. That's not the plan after this year. This really was just for the pandemic year. But it's starting in 2022. Like if you want to go see Matt Reeves, the Batman, you're going to have to go to theaters to see it. So to me, that's a pretty good sign. It means that they've been doing their research. They've been looking at the numbers. They've been weighing the pros and the cons. They see that the world is slowly sort of turning a corner here when it comes to the pandemic with vaccinations going up and numbers going down and all that sort of good stuff. So the fact that we're already talking about the fact that in 2022, all of Warner's big movies will be going to theaters. I think that's a pretty good sign that even with the relative success they had this year with the max streaming sharing paradigm between streaming and theaters, even though they've seen, despite the relative amount of success and buzz that they were able to build doing that, they still see enough value in the theatrical model to guarantee theatrical release windows for all of their Warner movies. So I feel like that's sort of new information too. And it's kind of good to know for those of us who love the movie theaters uh, and, and the, the experience of seeing a movie at a movie theater, it seems like Warner has heard us and they're not taking that away. Uh, we're going to get movies at the movies next year. And I'm, I'm very happy about that. <laughs> But okay, so now let's get into some of the week's top stories. There has been an awful lot of very interesting casting news this week, and I'm going to start things off by talking about Indiana Jones 5. All right, this is kind of a big deal for me because I love the Indiana Jones movies. I love Harrison Ford. I love Steven Spielberg. They're bringing back John Williams. But did you know that Steven Spielberg is not directing this? This is going to be the very first Indiana Jones movie that Spielberg does not direct himself. He's a producer and apparently a very sort of hands-on producer, which we know Spielberg to be, but he's just a producer this time around. And who do they have directing it, though? They've got James freaking Mangold 
And that, listen, that's not new news, but I, I, I haven't really had, a, I haven't given myself an opportunity to gush over that on this here show. But yes, you've got Mangold, one of my very favorite contemporary directors, working with Steven Spielberg behind the scenes to bring us a new Indiana Jones. And before I get into the casting that I think is so cool, I just also want to kind of like put in like a formal, I hope that this collaboration works out because it doesn't always work out. Sometimes when you have two phenomenal filmmakers from different generations, things just don't gel, you know, because I, I think about what just happened with uh, Terminator Dark Fate, right? Because I was very, very excited for Terminator Dark Fate because James Cameron, the, 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 the man who started it off, the man who gave us the Terminator to begin with, was returning to the series for the first time since T2. And he was working alongside one of my current favorite filmmakers, Tim Miller, who blew me away with Deadpool at the time. So I remember being very excited by that news. It's like, wow, okay, so you have one of my favorite new guys working with one of my all-time favorite OG classic filmmaker guys on a property I love a tremendous amount. But then what ended up happening? Apparently Miller and Cameron ended up at each other's throats and there was a lot of, you know, back and forth and fighting and Miller has vowed to never work with Cameron again. And apparently the third act of the film, there was a huge conflict about how it should go. And look, ultimately Terminator Dark Fate came and ultimately Terminator Dark Fate went. And that is kind of, um, you know, I think part of that is because Cameron and Miller weren't able to kind of, you know, maximize their powers as a team. It was one person with, here's how I think it should happen. It was another person was here with, here's how I think it should happen. And here's hoping that Spielberg and Mangold have a very nice working relationship as they head into Indiana Jones 5. But right now what they do have as they head into Indiana Jones 5, is one hell of a cast. Because while they did recently announce that Phoebe Waller-Bridge was going to be joining, I've never actually seen her show, but I know people are very excited for that. What I'm really excited for is that Mads Mikkelsen has just joined the cast of Indiana Jones 5. I am a huge Mads Mikkelsen fan, and I have been since Casino Royale. He really sort of grabbed my attention. His Le Chiffre is so like chilling and different and menacing without even having to be like over-the-top evil. That Mads Mikkelsen instantly, I'm like, this guy is really like captivating and, and charismatic in his own sort of way. And there's just something sort of ominous and weird about him just by looking at him. And then I ended up really loving his Hannibal TV show where he played Hannibal Lecter, which is no small feat, right? Because Anthony Hopkins had made Hannibal pretty much his character for the last 30 years. And uh, those were big shoes to fill. But Mads Mikkelsen, I thought, really filled them. And then he came to Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And I loved his part in that film. So, And then I thought he was like one of the best things about Doctor Strange. So Mads Mikkelsen, for me, like he brings with him a lot of inherent, I don't know, there's just something about him. He's got like a magnetism. I, I always kind of want to know what's on this guy's mind. I, I don't know where he's coming from. He makes me uneasy. And that's why I think he's more than likely going to play some sort of like shady, villainous character. 
that our uh, 80-year-old Indiana Jones has to deal with. But uh, listen, I cannot wait for Indiana Jones 5. Here's hoping Mangold and Spielberg get along famously because bringing back Harrison Ford to do this, giving him people like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Mads Mikkelsen to play off of, I am so freaking ready. Another bit of really cool casting news comes from Shazam 2, Fury of the Gods. Because while late last month we did get news that Helen Mirren was joining the cast as one of the villains of the piece, now we know that Lucy Liu is also joining. Lucy Liu of Charlie's Angels, Lucy Liu of a lot of stuff. That's a big get. And uh, I'm very excited to see what she brings to it. Her being the sister of Helen Mirren. I mean, I want to see how that all works out. But it's another you know, indication that Shazam 2 is moving forward. David F. Sandberg is a hilarious follow on Twitter, by the way. If you don't follow him, he's at Pony Smasher. You should totally get in on that because he posts the most funny stuff. And he has great responses and reactions to little fan controversies. Because earlier this week, for example, there was a rumor that Isa Gonzalez from uh, Baby Driver and Godzilla vs. Kong, that Isa Gonzalez is maybe going to be part of Shazam 2. And why do we think that? Because David F. Sandberg follows her on Twitter. And uh, (laughs) Sandberg took to Twitter after that to also point out that he follows like Big Bird and the Cookie Monster too. So does that mean that they're going to be in Shazam also? You can't just go and start spouting off theories just based on who people follow on social media. Go figure. But uh, yeah, so we got Lucy Liu and Helen Mirren coming to Shazam 2. And how's this one for a biggie? We just got some new casting information on Aquaman 2. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like things have been fairly radio silent on the Aquaman 2 front for a while, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, right? This movie made a billion dollars Christmas 2018. And now it's 2021, and we're still just getting little bits of casting information, which is just, I don't know. To me, that's interesting, because usually I'm kind of used to, like, the second the movie comes out, and it does as well as that one did, right away, whatever's coming up afterward is, like, fast-tracked, and and they kind of keep it on your mind. I feel like Aquaman has sort of been allowed to sort of drift off into the background until they're ready to start talking about part two. But hey, it looks like they're ready to start talking about part two because they just cast uh, Pilu Asbek from Game of Thrones. You would, may know him if you watch Game of Thrones. He played Euron Greyjoy, played kind of like a cool, charismatic, badass pirate type of guy. And right away, I could picture him on the high seas in Aquaman too. So I'm like, this is an interesting choice. You have a guy who's already sort of uh, associated with sort of swashbuckling stuff on the ocean, uh, swashbuckling stuff, because that's what Greyjoy was about. When he finally showed up in those later seasons of uh, Game of Thrones, he was this mysterious man from the sea. And now you take a mysterious man from the sea and throw him in Aquaman 2 against the King of Atlantis. So it just seems like cool, strategic sort of casting. And then when you think about the Game of Thrones connection, Right, that Jason Momoa became a household name because of his work on the first season of Game of Thrones. And now the latest cast member to his Aquaman sequel is someone who became well-known at the end of Game of Thrones run. So I like those little connections. I have fun with those little bits of trivia. But yeah, so we got some information about Aquaman 2's cast. And I think it's pretty cool. 
Another thing that caught my attention this week are all the headlines that Justin Lin has created by saying that there is a possibility that the Fast and Furious franchise and the Jurassic Park franchise uh, could somehow cross over. You know, there's been a lot of headlines about that. A lot of people had a lot of fun at the idea of that. But meanwhile, the reason that that story caught my attention isn't because of the unlikely possibility that we get to see Vin Diesel punch a dinosaur. No, no, no. The thing that grabbed me about this news was that it confirmed that Justin Lin was returning for Fast and Furious 9. I didn't realize that. I hadn't heard that news that had somehow not been on my radar. And that's actually a big deal for me. Because Justin Lin, I think, is actually underrated as all hell. Because, look... He's the reason that the Fast and Furious franchise has become the international smash hit that it's become over these last 10 or so years. Ever since he took over on the Fast and Furious franchise from Tokyo Drift onward, from the third film onward, it's been a whole new ballgame. He like reinvented, rebuilt and turned Fast and Furious into this international galactic smash hit. I say galactic because they've also joked that maybe they'll end up in space at some point. So they might have dinosaurs in part 10 and space in part 11. But the point is people keep going to see these movies. And a lot of it is because of the way Justin Lin sought to like build a deeper mythology, starting with Tokyo Drift onward. Listen, I'm not going to get too like heavy here with Fast and Furious, but Justin Lin absolutely approach this plotting wise as let's treat everything a little bigger, a little grander. Let's have an internal sort of mythology that kind of spans the globe and this and that. And look, Fast and Furious became more successful from like movie four onward than it ever was before that. Isn't that crazy to think how many franchises do you know that basically dwarfed whatever initial success they had with like the fourth, fifth and sixth movies in the franchise. And a lot of that is from Justin Lin. And when he left and opened up the door for James Wan to come in and do seven, listen, seven did find I was the one where Paul Walker unfortunately passed away. But also like, I felt like, Ooh, so fast and furious is losing some of its special sauce here. You know, Justin Lin is moving on and he went to go do Star Trek Beyond, which is where I think he demonstrated that he's much more than car chases and one-liners and girls in bikinis and explosions. Because when you think of Fast and Furious, you would not be wrong in comparing them to like your average sort of Michael Bay sort of, you know, meaningless popcorn blockbuster bubblegum movie. Right. You would think that, all right, anyone who makes these Fast and Furious movies, that's their lane. They're in the Michael Bay sort of lane. But then you see Star Trek Beyond. And I don't know how many of you did. The the box office wasn't that high. So I don't know how many of you actually went and did it. But Star Trek Beyond was a pretty special Star Trek movie. And it kind of brought things back after Star Trek Into Darkness was seen as a sort of like you know, a misstep in the franchise. A lot of people really genuinely enjoyed Star Trek Beyond. And that was Justin Lin kind of making the jump from Fast and Furious to the whole world of Star Trek. 
So he showed me there that this guy brings the goods. He knows how to direct a film that has action, that has emotion, that has heart and humor, that, ha that, that juggles a lot of different characters at once while giving them each, each of them a chance to shine. I mean, honestly, I feel like Justin Lin would be a natural pick if Christopher McQuarrie ever decides he's done with Mission Impossible and Paramount wants to keep on cranking out Mission Impossible movies, Justin Lin, I think, is your guy. He's already shown you he can do it. But yeah, so that's the, that's the funny thing, because he made like an offhanded joke. Somebody asked him, since Paramount owns both Fast and Furious and uh, Jurassic World. I see, did I make that up? Or is Jurassic Universal? I don't even know. I honestly, I forget now. But somebody asked him, since the the ambition for these Fast and Furious movies seems to be getting bigger and the scope keeps expanding, someone asked him if, uh, you know, a, a Jurassic Park crossover can happen. And he basically said, tongue in cheek, never say never. And people have been having a lot of fun with that. But, um... The last thing that I'll give you before I go to my final topic today, the final sort of bit of news that I didn't get to cover last week because I was focusing very heavily on one long-form topic that I will get to this week is that Adam Wingard, the guy who gave us Godzilla vs. Kong, which I haven't finished, by the way, but I started it and I'm enjoying it and I'll let you know what I ultimately think. But Wingard is going to make a Thundercats movie. Now, that might go over the head of some of you. I don't know. I don't know what my average, uh, the average age of my listener or viewer is, but I'm old, okay? I'm 37. <laughs> I was born in 1983. The Thundercats were a huge part of my childhood. And for years and years, I mean, I remember in the 90s, there'd be like wizard magazines doing like fan casts of who should play Lion-O and who should be Mumra and all that. And the fact that now it's 2021 and Adam Wingard, who just had a good amount of success with Godzilla versus Kong is now going to do a live action Thundercats movie. I mean, listen, I'm very, very, very hopeful for this. I hope that as casting news comes out and concept designs come out and everything, I hope that this lives up because the Thundercats, uh, they deserve a chance to shine. And there's a part of me that's been waiting like 30 years to see the Thundercats on the big screen. So that, that, that news absolutely floored me last week. And now we've come to this episode's final topic. And it kind of brings everything together because we began this by discussing how the streaming model and the theatrical model and all this sort of stuff is kind of going away. The line is being blurred. And to me, this connects to the fact that I think Superman works best on TV. And I've been loving the hell out of Superman and Lois. And I, for one, love this idea now that there's less separation between the movies and the TV shows. Because growing up, that was always the thing. Movies got all the attention, the huge budgets, the, 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 the legendary filmmakers worked there. And then TV was kind of like the little redheaded stepchild, you know? And now that we're in a place where the TV shows can almost look and feel as good as the movies do, that is a game changer for me. You know, and I've, I've always said, like, if you look at, like, the HBO level of production value, if you look at their Watchmen series, if you look at all their series, I've always said, if you could make DC properties that look and feel like this, that changes everything. 
And Superman on Lois uh, over on the CW is so above and beyond everything else in the Arrowverse from a production value standpoint, from a writing standpoint, even tonally speaking, Superman and Lois is an amazing example of where we can go creatively now with these characters. Because in the past, there were cost issues. In the past, trying to do a Superman show, for example, would be difficult to do because you need a lot of money to do that. You have a character that has like four or five extremely well-known superpowers and you got to show him flying and you got to give him villains that are up to his caliber so that's going to require huge action set pieces you know when you think about superman's history on the television it's always been like you get very limited amounts of superman it's because you can't really afford to do it right You know, in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, you would get like five to ten minutes of a Superman appearance somewhere in the episode. But a lot of it was really just about the human drama. And part of that is, you know, that's the story approach they wanted to tell, possibly. But also budgetary restrictions and the fact that back then TV shows and movies were on a totally different scale. Same thing with Smallville. Remember when when Tom Welling's Clark Kent would do super heroic feats, they had to call him the blur because they wouldn't show him really. He had to just be of like a big blurry flash because they didn't have the money or the production value to really do a Superman level action set piece in each episode. But now that there's some synergy between the CW and HBO Max, you've even got Greg Berlanti, who's sort of uh, done a little bit of a glow up. You know, he went from running the CW and he's still pretty much handling the CW's end of the DC universe. But now he's also doing Green Lantern and other stuff for HBO Max. So Berlanti has kind of done a little bit of a glow up going to HBO Max. But that synergy now. Between what's happening on HBO, what's happening on the CW, how that connects to the movies has led to the fact that we now have a Superman TV series that looks and feels like a movie. There is big budget spectacle in each one. There's great symphonic score. The 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 story itself will span the entire globe sometimes in a single episode. Like now we're, we're in a zone where these shows can be dealt with like movies. That is sort of the subtext of what I was talking to you about earlier today. The fact that all of these departments now work together to try to put forth a cohesive and coherent vision together. If Superman and Lois is a proof of concept, it's then keep it coming. Give me more of that. If, if you're going to put that level of attention into honoring these characters, the way that that show honors the Superman mythology, then you have my trust. You have my faith. I'm going to give you lots of rope to kind of give you lots of slack and leeway to explore what it is you're doing. Because I think this may be some of the very best Superman storytelling ever. I mean, listen, we're only five episodes in, but we're totally heading into a zone here with this character that I only ever dreamt of before. And that would not have been possible without this weird way in which the lines have been blurred between movies and TV. The fact that now everything is kind of coming from one creative source now and that everything can look and feel and have some uniformity in that way, that means we could get some unbelievably special content in the years to come. And honestly, Superman, in this particular case, like the fact that they could take their time now, he really does work best in this medium. 
Because, look, a lot of people have issues with soups. They think he's a little boring. They think he lacks dimensionality. They think he's just like a one-dimensional, big blue Boy Scout character. And sometimes, look, the, the movies have had a hard time connecting with audiences. I have to admit that. Even as a diehard Superman fan, I have to make peace with the fact that the last two solo movies failed to connect on the level of other superhero movies. You know, when Superman Returns came out and did 400 mil while the, 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 the Spider-Man movies are doing eight or 900, you know, I had to accept, wow, there's just much more interest in Spidey than there is in Superman right now. Yikes. And then when Man of Steel came out and it did pretty well, but then a year later, Guardians of the Galaxy did even better. Like the fact that a Guardians movie could do better than a Superman movie, you know, to me, I have to look at that realistically and objectively and go, there's something about Superman that prevents people from fully investing and fully diving in, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's been like a bit of a hard truth because I've been over here waiting for a good Superman movie for ages, but every time that they try it, audiences are always a little bit lukewarm to it. But now in Superman and Lois, where you have this time to really show all the layers of the character and all the intricacies of what makes Superman a unique character. And we get to explore him in settings we've never seen before and in little quiet ways and in some huge ways. That's something you can't necessarily accomplish in a two-hour movie. So I feel like this TV medium might be the perfect place for the last son of Krypton to do what he does best. And now that we're in this zone where the TV shows can look like movies, I'm all here for it. So I just wanted to share that with you. And I also wanted to kind of throw out one last little thing since we're on Superman and Lois. I will say that it kind of mm, irks me that they didn't consider Brandon Routh for this one. Because look, he was already there. He was already part of this universe. He's already well known as Superman to a large extent. But not just that. When you look at the ages... It really feels like what they want, what this series is supposed to be showing us is a middle-aged Clark, a Clark who's around 40, who has a 14-year-old kid, right? But Tyler Hoechlin is only like 31 or 32, and the two guys who play his kids are 18 and 19. So unless Clark was like 12 or 13 years old when he had these kids, you know, he's really not like a father's distance from these kids. But Brandon Routh is. And Brandon Routh is also the same age as Bitsy Tulloch, who plays Lois. You know, she, she's around 40. Tyler Hoechlin is like 31 or 32. Brandon Routh is 41. So it's like Brandon Routh and Bitsy Tulloch, who, by the way, had wonderful chemistry together in the Arrowverse crossover thing when they finally meet at the Daily Planet and you hear that swell of the... Um, you know, like the John Williams, Lois Lane theme sort of deal. Like, I got goosebumps. Like, I liked Bitsy or Elizabeth with Brandon. I'm like, oh, that's a good pairing. They look like Clark and Lois to me. So a part of me, that's the only thing I'll say. Like, I love Tyler Hoechlin. I think he's knocking it out of the park. So far, I'm enjoying his Clark. I'm enjoying his Superman. I'm enjoying the, the heft and depth that he's bringing to the role now that the writing is so much stronger for Superman. I love all that stuff. But a part of me is like, the ideal casting 
for this 40-year-old Clark Kent would have been Brandon Ralph. And I kind of can't shake that sometimes. But I just kind of wanted to share that. Has anyone else thought of that? Be sure to let me know. But uh, listen, thank you for joining me today for episode 133 of the Fanboy Podcast. By this time next week, we're going to have something else to talk about. We're going to have Superman on film to talk about because that is launching. So I'm looking forward to speaking to you next week on episode 134. And until then... Life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.